Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization, and a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to connect with you soon. So there are, are three indispensable ingredients to an effective lifeline, and, and each one really is indispensable for the lifeline to be effective. First, you have to have the line itself, and it has to uh, be attractive enough to kind of grab your attention, and the line has to be strong enough that it doesn't snap under the pressure, right? So you have the line. Uh, and then, of course, this line needs to be anchored to something, because if you kind of throw it out there and it's not anchored to anything, it's... Gonna, you're, you're still going to be lost at sea, right? And so that anchor, whatever it's anchored to, needs to be massive enough that this will be firm and secure and that it won't, won't bend under the weight of whatever is being saved. And the third element is the knot. The knot that ties the lifeline to the anchor point. And if that knot is loose, it doesn't matter how firm your anchor point is or how strong your line is, this won't save anyone, and it will be a lifeline for no one in that process. And uh, I learned this lesson the hard way when I was about uh, nine years old. My uh, siblings and I, we built a little tree fort in our, our front yard, and there's a little platform up in a tree, and we had a rope that went up to the platform, and we were up there playing, and we had our water bottles with us, and we didn't want them to fall off the platform. So what we did is there was a, a little extra rope at the, the uh, top of the branch, and so we actually ran a little more slack through that knot, and then we tied it to another branch. And we had this little line up there that we could hang our water bottles on. And then, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're inside and realized we left our water bottles outside. And so I, I rode my bike over to the tree and I shimmy up the rope and I undo the knot to release our water bottles. And then I jump back on the rope with all the confidence I had when I went up it and realized very quickly that when we loosened the first knot to tie the second knot, we, we compromised this first knot. And so the second knot that I untied was the only knot holding up the rope. And so I quickly fell to the ground, uh, actually not to the ground, I fell to my bike, landed on my bike, broke my wrist. And it, it didn't matter how strong the rope was. I knew the rope could carry me, it carried me before. It didn't matter how firm the tree was that was holding it, the knot was loose. And so the, the line became useless. And today we're continuing, we're actually finishing up our series that we've called Refresh, where we've been studying through the book of Psalms, taking different Psalms each week, seeking to be refreshed by our God as his, his word in these Psalms is unpacked to us. And today we're looking at what is arguably the most famous Psalm in all of the Psalter. Uh, in fact, it's probably one of the most famous passages of Scripture period. Uh, it's Psalm 23. And Psalm 23, if you're not familiar, it is a psalm that has been a lifeline for saints throughout the ages. It's something that people for the last 3,000 years have clung to. It's often used at funerals uh, to, to restore people's hope in the midst of these dark valleys. And even if, if you're tuning in or you're here in the room and you're not familiar with Psalm 23, as we start to read through it, you're going to realize pretty quickly that like, you've heard some of this before because it's 
quoted in books and movies and by early 90s hip-hop artists. Uh, there are like bits and pieces of this that you're going to hear because it's kind of even in pop culture at this point. And if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open up to Psalm 23 because we're going to read through this together. Uh, you can use an app as well. If you're watching at live.beacon.church, there's a, a tab right there uh, on the screen for the Bible. You can pull it up, uh, Psalm 23. And this is written by David. Uh, You might be familiar with David. This is the the little boy who killed the giant, same David. Uh, He eventually became king of Israel, led Israel into their golden age. He was a military hero, all of that. But before he came to notoriety, David was a a simple, humble shepherd boy. And from his beginnings as a shepherd, he, he latches onto an image that is very familiar to him. And he writes Psalm 23, and he begins with this, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He says he refreshes my soul. And and notice he says he refreshes my soul. One of the things to keep in mind, even as we're reading through this, it's not the, the words of Psalm 23 that refresh our soul. It is the God of Psalm 23 that refreshes our soul. He refreshes our soul. So it's not like we can just kind of recite this as some magical incantation and we'll be refreshed. No, it's through the words of this that we're able to connect with our God who refreshes our soul. He goes on, he says, he guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. This, uh, this psalm, you can see why it, it's such a lifeline for people throughout the ages. It's such a, a hopeful and beautiful picture. But like any good lifeline, it has these, these three ingredients of the line itself, the anchor point, and the knot. And, and first off, we see the line, which is this promise of hope. It's something that is, is bright enough to grab your attention, and it's strong enough to hold the weight that it's going to bear. It's this picture of hope. And, and what a picture of hope. These are some of the things that he says. I lack nothing. Green pastures, quiet waters, refreshes my soul. There's actually, uh, there are more promises here than there are verses in this psalm. In fact, there's, it averages more than two promises per verse. There's so many promises wrapped up in this, right? I lack nothing. Green pastures. This picture of green pastures. So if you're a sheep and you're in a green pasture, that means you're surrounded by food, right? So you have your sustenance. He doesn't just say that you're in green pastures. It says you're, you lie down in green pastures, right? So not only are you satisfied, but you're, you're just resting in the abundance. And by quiet waters, again, that provision that we need of water, but it's quiet waters. So you can go to the water and not fear that you're going to get sucked in by the torrent. There's this, this peaceful tranquility, even as you find your sustenance. He talks about refreshing our soul and, and the right paths. And, and he says, yeah, there's going to be dark times. We all know this. This isn't a mystery to us. There's dark seasons in our lives. But, but imagine being able to go it without fearing the evil. And you guys know this because you know that there are t- like times where you look ahead to something and you know it's coming. And, and the, the anticipation of it is worse than the actual experience. You know what I'm talking about, right? Where the, the fear and the anxiety is actually worse than the experience itself. But imagine if all those dark valleys that we have to go into, the fear was sucked out of it. It says how, that he's with us. 
and he comforts us. And then he, he changes analogies and he says, it t- uh, there's a table set before me. Uh, this is important to note. He does change analogies here because if you're a sheep and you see a feast being prepared before you, you get really nervous that lamb chops are uh, on the menu tonight. No, he changes analogy. And now he, there's this picture of a feast and he's like, there's this table before me and he anoints my head and he talks about the cup overflowing which doesn't only speak to provision, but it, it speaks to attention. I, uh, I was a waiter at a country club, club for a little while, and one of the things that was really important is always making sure that the water glasses were full. Always making sure uh, that you were on top of it, because what it communicated is that you were being attentive to them, that you ha- they had your undivided attention, that you were there. And this, this idea of a cup overflowing, it's not just about the provision of this, this goodness and this joy, but the attention. Somebody who's there, every time you take a sip, to come back and fill it up, because you're on his mind. And then, of course, goodness and love follow me. And it's not like goodness and love are like kind of trailing behind me as I go along. This idea of goodness and love following me, it means that goodness and love are pursuing us from behind. They're like chasing us down. And then we get to dwell in his house forever. And you see this picture, and it starts, you lay down, and God is there beneath you, and he's alongside of you, and he is before you, and he is through the dark times, and then you come, and he is attending to you, and he is following from behind you, and he's all around you. This picture of hope that we get, and there's something in here for everybody, because if you're an introvert, there's peace, and there's quiet. And if you're an extrovert, there's a party at the end. And if you're, you're just weary and tired, there's rest. And if you're restless, there's a little bit of adventure. And if you're, you're, you're just anxious and you're nervous and you're fearful, there's comfort. There's something in here for each of us in each season of our life. And you, you can see why this picture of hope has been such a, an attractive lifeline to people for 3,000 years. But even as we reflect over this, these words, while they sound nice, perhaps they, you, you, they don't really feel refreshing. You don't feel like, oh, all right, I feel better now because I, I was reminded of these things. Because, of course, it's not the words themselves that provide refreshment. It's the God behind these words. And, and a lifeline, if it's not anchored to anything, it, it doesn't provide the, the refreshment and that saving grace that we need. We need an anchor point. And our anchor point in this psalm is my all-sufficient shepherd. My all-sufficient shepherd. He starts off this psalm with this very simple but profound statement. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, this word Lord uh, that's translated in English as Lord here, in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. Uh, in fact, in your Bible, if you're following along in your Bible, it's probably, Lord is probably in all caps like this, right? Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, it's signifying this word Yahweh, which was God's personal name. This is how God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. He said, my name is Yahweh, which means I am who I am. I am who I am. And actually, it speaks to God's, it, it speaks to his self-existence, right? God, God just always was. It's not like God started, nothing made God, he just is. I am who I am. And it also speaks to his, his self-sufficiency. Like, God doesn't need anything from outside of him to sustain himself. He, he's just, he has it all within himself. Like, like, you and I, if we're stranded out at sea, we can maybe go several weeks without food. We can maybe go several days without fresh water. 
Uh, and if we start to sink into the water, we can maybe go several minutes without a, a breath of fresh air. We are constantly being reminded that we aren't self-sufficient. We need something from outside of us. God needs nothing. He is completely self-sufficient. He just, he just is. I am who I am. And David sees that this, this infinite, almighty, eternal God who is self-existent, who sustains everything, who needs nothing, is his shepherd. And he finds tremendous hope in this. And then he says something. He adds to this. He says something in verse 3. He says that all the things that the shepherd is doing, that he, he makes me, he leads me, he refreshes me. Oh, whoa. <laughs> We're having some issues here. Uh, <laughs> if somebody wants to... Uh, <clears throat> That he makes me, he leads me, he refreshes me, he guides me. And he says he does this for his name's sake. So that the, the shepherd, Yahweh, our shepherd, is shepherding us for his name's sake. That primarily, that the, the reason that God is shepherding David isn't primarily for David's sake. It's actually for God's sake, which can seem a little off-putting when you start to think about it. It's like, well, I thought God was, like, out there for me. Now you're telling me that he's really out there for himself. And just pause for a second, because I want to explain why, one, this makes sense. (laughs) But two, why this is good news. Because uh, let's take the shepherding analogy uh, that David uses here. A shepherd, shepherding a sheep. The shepherd's going to do a lot to serve his sheep. But we all know that the shepherd doesn't exist to serve the sheep. The sheep exists to serve the shepherd, right? That even though the shepherd might do all these things for the sheep, it's ultimately for the shepherd's joy and pleasure that he is serving the sheep. And we would never think twice about it. We wouldn't call the shepherd selfish for expecting the sheep to ultimately serve him and his joy and his satisfaction. In fact, there's a piece of this, and I know there might be some extremists who disagree, but there's a piece of this where we understand that the life of a person is more valuable than the life of a sheep, all right? I, I think most of us would probably agree about that. And, and if there was a person who actually started to prioritize the life of a sheep over the life of a person, we'd probably say they have their priorities a little out of whack, that there's something a little off in how they viewed the world. And, and in fact, there's something even wasteful about it, right? When you see a person, uh, say a, a person devotes their entire life to the accumulation of money and status to the neglect of the relationships in their life. We would say that person wasted their life because they, they decided to prioritize the lesser over the greater, right? And that, that's a waste. When we prioritize the lesser over the greater, that's, that's a waste of resources and time and energy and effort. And, and to look at God, who is the infinite, self-existing, all-sustaining creator of the universe, there is nothing greater. There is no one greater. There's actually nothing in the world that God could look to that's worth his time more than himself, because he is the greatest. And so it's not, it's not selfish or wrong for God to prioritize himself and his own pleasure and his own glory, because he's the best, all right? He's not just a better sheep, all right, he is the shepherd. We're the sheep. All right, so not only, not only is it sensible that God prioritizes himself, but it's good. Because when David talks about it and he says, you know, you're doing this for my name, for your name's sake, 
He doesn't say it as like, oh, this is just the truth. He says it in a hopeful way. Because David knows that God, in his grace and his mercy, decided to, to tie together his name and David's good. The two of them became united in this covenant promise that when God is pursuing his name and his good pleasure and his joy and satisfaction, that he is also now pursuing David's good. The two have been married together in this covenant relationship. And we see this in 2 Samuel. God comes to David and he, uh, he declares this promise to him. Uh, I'm sorry, guys, this isn't working, so I'm probably going to need uh, some help with the, the slides. Uh, so the, the Lord, he says, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Your house, this is God speaking to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. This is the promise God makes to David. And then David responds. He says, how great are you are. Sovereign Lord, right? This is this understanding that God is sovereign. He's the greatest. There's nothing that compares to him. How great are you? There's no one like you. And there's no God but you, right? And who is like your people Israel? the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, to make a name for himself. If you want to jump back real quick. Uh, To make a name for himself. You, You see this? What God is doing is he's tying his name with the good of his people Israel and particularly with David. That there's this this covenant promise that now they're they're inextricably tied. You can't separate them. That anytime God is pursuing his good name, he is pursuing the good of his people. Which is why David can say so confidently, God, do this for your name, because if you do it for your name, I know you're doing it for my good. Well, then then we fast forward a thousand years, and Jesus comes on the scene, and he picks up the shepherding language, and Jesus says this. He says, I have, sorry, I need the next slide. (laughs) I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. He has other sheep, all right? There's other people to be brought in to this covenant relationship. I must bring them also, and they too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And in Hebrews 9, we're told that for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. So in the same way that there was this covenant relationship between David and Israel and God that married his great name to their eternal good, now there's a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised internal, eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free. There's a new covenant, and it's not based on being an Israelite or a child of David. It's based on faith, being brought in through faith. And that new covenant extends to me and you as long as we're trusting in Jesus. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says, remember... That at that time, you were separate from Christ, right? In the old covenant, you know, unless you were Jewish, which I I know there are some of you are, but for most of us, we were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants. So that covenant promise wasn't ours then, but without hope and without God in the world. But, he says, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's this new covenant relationship where God has decided to take his infinite, all-sufficient, all-sustaining, self-existent, eternal creator of the universe, value, worth, and take all of that and marry it to your eternal good. 
that when God is pursuing his own glory, he is simultaneously pursuing your good. Which is why the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 can say so boldly, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, right? Who have been called according to his purpose. His purpose, his pleasure, his plan is now tied to your eternal good, my eternal good. This is the anchor point that our lifeline is tied into. It is firm and secure. It is so massive. There is nothing bigger than it because this lifeline is anchored into the creator himself, the infinite, self-existent, all-sustaining God who needs nothing, who has everything. And you and I get to be tied into that. That's the anchor point that this lifeline is tied into. You think that's massive enough to carry the weight? Absolutely. But of course, having a a firm anchor point and having this attractive lifeline over here still doesn't do any good if the knot is loose. And so there's this third ingredient in this psalm that we have to look at, which of course is the knot, which in this case is faithful submission. David starts off and he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And that that is a statement of, of hope. Yeah, the Lord is my shepherd. But it's also a statement of submission. Because if he's the shepherd, that means I'm the sheep. Right? And look at some of the, the ways that the shepherd relates to the sheep. Right? He says, he makes me do things. And he leads me and he guides me. He makes me do things. I don't like being made to do anything. Uh, I don't know about you. Even if it's something I wanted to do originally, if you want to make me do it, I want to do it that much less in that moment, all right? Look at, like, even just the, the whole kind of mask thing. Like, there's some people that get really upset that we have to wear masks. And, and you know it's not because, like, masks are that horrible. It's because we're being made to do it. Uh, I was talking to my dad a couple weeks ago, uh, and we were talking about the whole mask thing. And my dad's like, huge germaphobe. So he loves the masks. He's like, let's, let's keep the masks. Let's just keep doing the masks, pandemic, whatever. Uh, he's like, yeah, no, 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 it's fine. But then he throws into the conversation that he, he says, but I hate that they tell me to wear my seatbelt. <laughs> I can't, hate that somebody can tell me to wear my seatbelt, which for the record, he of all people should be wearing a seatbelt because he has the worst driving record. Uh, he had to take like a second mortgage out just to pay his uh, car insurance. Uh, that's, that's not true. Uh, but he does seriously get in like two accidents a year. Um, sorry, Dad, uh, for outing you like that. I, he's, he's pretty cool. Uh, but, and he will wear his seatbelt, but he hates that he's being made to wear his seatbelt because there's something in us, right? And it's part of our sinful human nature. And it, like, we didn't learn it over time. I'm watching this now with my daughter. She's only 18 months. And like, if it's my idea, it's a bad idea. If it's her idea, it's great. Like, uh, and as soon as I try to get her to do something, no. But if she wants to do it, it's fine because there's something in us. We don't like to be told what to do. We don't like somebody's going to mess with my autonomy. And here the shepherd comes in, he's making us do stuff and he's leading us and he's guiding us. And he says, you're with me, which we often read as, as kind of a comforting thing, right? God is with us, and we do want him with us most of the time, right? Like, we want him with us in the midst of a pandemic to make sure that we don't lose our job. But we don't want him with us, you know, late at night when we're kind of clicking through some websites that we're going to immediately erase from our browser history, right? We don't want him with us then. 
We want them with us when we're driving on the LIE and we're taking our lives in our hands. We want traveling mercies, whatever those are. Uh, but, but we don't really want them with us when we're engaging in the office gossip and we're continuing to pile accusations on Karen behind her back, further ruining her reputation. Uh, sorry to the Karens of the world. Uh, we, we don't want God with us then, right? We want God with us when we're in trouble, but we don't want God with us when we are trouble, right? We don't want that all-seeing eye. We want a little bit of privacy. We, we revolt against this. Uh, you know, for those who are familiar with philosophy, this is what Sartre was talking about with his keyhole and Foucault with Panopticon. There's, there's something with it. We don't want Big Brother watching. We don't want God with us all the time. And then there's the rod and the staff. And the rod and the staff for a shepherd was like their Swiss army knife, uh, there's this uh, Christian author, his name's Philip Keller, and he actually was a shepherd uh, for several years, and so he kind of writes about Psalm 23 from the perspective of actually being a shepherd. And he, he talks about some of the ways that the rod and the staff is used, and of course, it's often used to kind of beat away wild animals to protect the sheep. Uh, we like that. I want God to do that for me. And, and you know, the, the crook of the staff will be used to kind of pull a sheep out of the thicket. Like, I want God to do that, rescue me. But then sometimes the rod and the staff are used to discipline the sheep. Uh, I could leave that one. Uh, there's other ways that uh, he says that they'll, they'll use the rod and the staff to comb through the wool of the sheep because the wool is thick enough that it kind of creates this, this superficial appearance that everything's good and healthy, but as they comb through, they're able to see all the blemishes and all the flaws and all the things that are wrong with the sheep. And I don't want God combing through and pointing out what's wrong with me. I like to, to take the shepherd in some ways, but not in all of the ways. I want him to, yes, come and save me, but I don't necessarily want him to lead me all the time. When I was a kid, when I would hear this psalm, uh, it, was, uh, it would be quoted from uh, an older translation, and it starts with, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And as a kid, I didn't understand how semicolons work. And so I always thought it was like, the Lord is my shepherd that I don't want. Like, I don't want him as my shepherd. And, and when we look at this aspect of the shepherd, there's a little bit of truth to that. Like, this is the shepherd that I don't want. Like, I want the shepherd to sh save me. I don't want the shepherd to lead me and make me do things and, and be the one that's guiding me through this life. But of course, this is the knot that ties our lifeline to the anchor point. Sometimes this is talked about, people say, uh, it, you know, there's a difference between having Jesus as Savior and having Jesus as Lord, but that's, that's actually garbage. Because uh, if Jesus isn't Lord of all, he can't save anyone or anything. He's either Lord at, of all or he's not Lord at all. And there are areas in our lives that might not be led by the shepherd. What are those areas for you? Where do you find yourself being led by a different voice? And, and maybe even as we're talking about it, for you, there are some sin issues that kind of come to mind immediately. And, like, and, and if they are, you know they're there. And like already you're trying to come up with excuses why, like, no, that's not what is being talked about. Don't push away that voice. Because that's the shepherd prodding you, disciplining you to say these sin issues. You know, you know that this isn't you following the shepherd but of course, following the shepherd isn't just about avoiding sin issues. It's about following him in, in every area of life. 
right? In, in David's life, he made two huge mistakes. Uh, I'm sure he made more, but there's two that are recorded in scripture that were like devastating to him. The one was like obvious he had an affair and then had another guy killed to cover it up, like big deal, catastrophic. But the other big mistake he made, it wasn't wandering into some sin issue. We're actually told that he decided as king that he wanted to count up his armies. Doesn't seem like a big deal. He just wanted to count up the armies. This is what kings do. They, they measure their armies to know how secure they are. But of course, this was offensive to God because David got to this place in his life not by the size of his army, but by the might of his God. It wasn't about the armies. God was the one who was doing all of this. And in that moment, David decided, well, you know, this is how kings do it. This is how the world does it. And it seems like it's a wise decision, so I'm just going to do it. And how often are we led, not necessarily into sin, but we're being led by the world in ways that are, are contrary to how the shepherd is leading us? Well, I was on vacation. I read this book uh, called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And as I was reading it, I was so convicted. Because it was talking about just the ways that we, we schedule our lives and the, the pace of life. And, you know, as New Yorkers, you get this. And, and realizing that I, I've contributed to this, that I, I actually haven't been organizing my schedule and my time uh, around the patterns of Jesus. Like, there's no Sabbath rest in my life. Like, I, and, and then I look to Jesus and I see that he's never in a hurry. He's never in a rush. And I realize, ah, man, I've actually been following the pattern of the world. I've just been doing it. And it's normal. It seems like, you know, this is what you do. But I'm not following the shepherd. And then I'm surprised when I'm not being refreshed in this area where my pace of life is, is crushing me. And I'm like, oh, why is this happening? God, come and refresh me. And it's like, well, follow the shepherd. Right? What areas of your life? I don't want to ask you, are you following the shepherd? Because I, I think we'll all say yes. But what areas of your life are you not following the shepherd? And maybe it is into sin, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's just that we're following the patterns of the world. In areas like, like me, maybe it's the, the schedule and the pace of life, or maybe it's your finances, the way you spend money, the way you save money, right? Uh, Jesus, remember Jesus? He let Judas be his uh, treasurer. Like, that's how uh, invested in financial resources Jesus was. But, uh, like, but how do, are, we being, are we being led? Are we being led by the shepherd in these other areas of life? I encourage you, just as a, a first step, try to, to look into your own life and see where, where are the places where you feel the tension and the pressure and that need for refreshment so acutely? Where, where do you feel that the most? Because there's a good chance in those areas where you're longing for refreshment most, in those areas, perhaps we haven't been led by the shepherd, we've been following the pattern of the world. And, and all of a sudden, this firm anchor point and this promise of hope just keeps slipping through because it's tied together with a slipknot. And what if we decided to, to look into these areas and, and dive deeper and, and try to figure out, all right, God, how, how would you lead me? If I, 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 you know, we just uncritically just kind of take the patterns of the world with so many of the things that we do. What if we, we didn't do that? What if we stopped and we said, wait, this is how the world does it. Is that okay? Is that how the shepherd would do it? especially in those areas where you, you need refreshment and, and reorganize, but it's going to be scary. It's going to be scary. It was unwise for a king to not know how big his army was. From the world's perspective, it's unwise for a king to not know how big his army was. But we don't follow the ways of the world. And there are going to be times where the things that we do, the ways that Jesus is leading us, they're, they're scary because they don't seem they, like they make sense or they don't seem like it's the wise decision 
But I want to remind you that when Jesus showed up on the scene, he said, not that I'm the infinite, all-powerful, all-sustaining shepherd. He said, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. See, the shepherd that we're following, he's not just powerful and mighty and worth following. He's good. And there's nothing that he's going to invite you into that isn't for your good. And so, yes, it might be scary. Yes, it might seem unwise to the people around us. But he has married his great and glorious name to your eternal good. And he's just inviting, come, tie that knot tighter and tighter in every area of your life. And and I'm going to come and I'm going to refresh you. Let's pray. Father, you are the infinite, self-existing, all-sustaining creator of the universe. So far above us, so much greater, we can't even wrap our minds around your greatness and your grandeur. And you're so good. Sacrificing yourself for us, God, that, that we can look at your greatness and not cower in fear because your perfect love casts out that fear. God, I, I pray that we would look to these promises that you've made and that we would cling to them as a lifeline, but make sure that that lifeline is anchored to you, God, and that we tie that knot, submitting faithfully to your lead, wherever you're leading us, God. In the ways that you're leading us away from the world and in ways that you might be leading us deeper into your mission in ways that you're leading us deeper into trusting you instead of the the institutions and powers of this world, God. And we're nervous and we're going to be scared, but I pray that you, you come and you comfort us. And you wipe away that fear. And refresh our souls. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name.